Welcome to Strategy Lab, where we talk to some of the brightest minds behind some of the biggest stories in business and politics. I'm your host, C.R. Wooters, and I'm joined by my business partner, Adam Weiss. Adam, how you doing, buddy? I am vertical, breathing, and looking forward to this podcast. All right, so tell the folks who we have on the show today. Today, we are talking to Adam Hodge, who is the Senior Vice President for External Affairs of Ariel Investments. Before his time at Ariel, Adam worked at the public affairs firm SKD Knickerbocker. He also served as the communications director at the DNC and was the U.S. Treasury Department Deputy Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs. You know, for a guy with the list, this is a little challenging. Uh, Earlier in his career, Adam served as the press secretary for the House Majority Whip, James Clyburn, and in the office of the former Senator Chris Dodd. In case folks don't know Ariel Investments LLC, it's a money management firm headquartered in Chicago with offices in New York City and Sydney. Ariel Investments serves individual and institutional investors through its no-load mutual funds and separate accounts. As of July 31st, 2019, Ariel Investments' firm-wide assets under management totaled approximately $12 billion. So Ariel Investments is no joke, and neither is Adam Hodge. Let's, uh, Let's welcome him now. Adam Hodge, welcome to Strategy Lab, buddy. Good to be with you guys. All right, so tell us what uh, tell us what Ariel Investments is, and tell us kind of what your role is there. So Ariel Investments uh, is a uh, asset management firm headquartered in Chicago, with offices in New York and, and Sydney, Australia, uh, run by John Rogers and Melody Hobson as our co CEOs. Uh, John, Amela, John Rogers founded the firm as actually the first African-American-owned asset management firm in the country in 1983. Uh, and he's wow. got a remarkable story of uh, his legacy going back to his great-grandfather owned the Stratford Hotel in Tulsa that was burned down in the Tulsa race riots wow. and lost everything. Um, and he moved to, to Chicago and John was uh, born in, in Chicago. But just a chance to, uh, I'm working with two incredible pioneers in, in business and um, and it dovetails actually perfectly with my experience, um, sort of running domestic finance communications at the U S treasury department in the Obama administration. Um, but, uh, so it's, we're, um, about a hundred, hundred people, uh, strong at the firm. And, um, it, what's fascinating about Ariel is we're 100% focused on delivering results for our clients. And many of them are people who trust us with their retirement. Yep. Um, but the, the, the firm has had a, um, a clear um, perspective on being a good corporate citizen uh, and trying to advance diversity and inclusion in corporate America from our earliest days. And so it's a, it's, it's, it's a great place to go to work. And uh, one just quick follow-up, what si- size of the firm, like how much money you guys have, at, uh, assets under management, that kind of stuff? Yeah, we've, we've got a, a close to 12 billion assets under management. Um, and, uh, We've got um, it, we're a uh, value long-term value investors, uh, and okay. so looking at um, um, companies that typically are undervalued um, or the market deems is you know not some of the major growth stocks like Amazon and and, and Facebook, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know companies more like MSG Entertainment, and um, but we we believe firmly in in. Um, having a portfolio of, of companies that we're going to hold for the long term and find long term value 
on both uh, the domestic side and, and international side. And so um, John Rogers is a portfolio manager who runs our um, the, so oversees our domestic strategy and yep. a woman, um, fascinating, uh, an incredibly brilliant woman named Rupal Bansali runs our international um, business. And so um, we uh, just go to work every day trying to, um, you know, drive results for our clients. So I just, I was very excited that you were doing this uh, one, because I just think you're brilliant, but also uh, I'm just fascinated by this world, right? Like the, the world of, of investment firms and, and kind of um, thinking through kind of what the, like in my mind, like thinking through what the future of the economy looks like, et cetera. Um, and most investment firms have lanes that they play in. Uh where do you feel like you talked a little about long-term kind of strategy and investment, but like, where do you feel like you can have the biggest impact as if you can get more granular on that? Uh, you're talking about myself specifically or the, or no, the, the firm? firm. I mean, I think that, that so much of markets today is really looking at the quarter and, and trying to figure out what, what the next um, hot spot in the market is. Um, with it and but we we feel like we and this is goes back to the principles that Warren Buffett really um, lives by that you find companies that are are undervalued have a little hair on them maybe um, that have but have strong management strong balance sheets um, generally have a unique position in the market uh, that the, we we think as a as someone as an actively managed firm and we're picking stocks that we think um, you know that we believe in. Um, will grow and and the value uh, of, of the stock will increase over time. And so, um, my job at the firm is, is to help tell Ariel's story, to help and the people who are at the firm, um, and also help to uh, because as, as I said, we have that larger government affairs and government uh, and public policy um, priorities to try to just move the needle on on those, especially around diversity and inclusion. So um, I'll follow up on that one. What's the, you mentioned the public policy stuff around diversity and inclusion. I know that you guys are on the Hill, I think this week, um, you know, uh, talking about that. Can you just talk about how you're think how you, uh, it's because it's kind of built into the company a little bit, right? So where are, I think a lot of people, um, a lot of corporations are coming to diversity inclusion um, recently and have said, you know, how do we make our boards look different? How do we make our management look different? But it feels like something you guys have been doing for kind of a while. Um, and, and just how do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's something that we preach not only from a policy perspective, but also from a business standpoint, we think, uh, there are more than 45 occasions where we have companies that are in our portfolio that stocks that we own, where we push them to diversify their boards because we think and the research shows that more diverse companies outperform non-diverse companies. Uh, and so uh, not, not only is it the right thing to do, it just makes good business sense. And, and Melody Hobson um, has a great, great quip uh, that you know, companies that aren't diverse um, are, you know, they w- will die. It's just not, a, it's more a matter of, of when, not if. Sure. Um, and so um, you tend to get, by having diverse voices around the table, diverse voices in the C-suite, you're going to see um, unique market opportunities, unique uh, business opportunities for your company, uh, and that ultimately leads to, to long-term results. Beyond the, the, the business standpoint, though, I think 
society as a whole, we've, we've, and you see this in, in the, the widening wealth gap, that there's just a lack of true access uh, at the highest levels of corporate America for people of color. I mean, they, they're, they're, today there are roughly four black CEOs in America. Um, I remember last year was the first time that all Fortune 500 boards had at least one woman on their board, which is crazy in 2019 that that's the first time. <laughs> totally that. crazy, yeah. Um, and so uh, we, we, we have run and, and put on for the last 18 years a, uh, our Black Corporate Directors Conference, which um, gathers the Fortune 500 um, Black board members to come together to, to talk through ways that we can advance civil rights in, in the boardroom um, mm-hmm. and, and real create access to diversity and inclusion within the boardroom. And we, we focus the conversation around what we call the three Ps, uh, people, purchasing, and philanthropy. And philanthropy has been getting a lot of attention these days. You've seen companies roll out uh, with their, um, you know, any of their, we're going to give sure. $5 million here. Um, but it feels like that's the easiest to do. And maybe I'm being, that's exactly right. Like they it, have a it, bank it, account and they can write the check to HBCUs or they can write a check to something else. Right. I, and, I don't mean to, I don't mean to diminish it. I'll take whatever diversity we can get, but it feels like that's the easiest to motivationally operate. That's, that's absolutely right. I think the charity is great. Nobody right. like happy to uh, that companies want to, but if they're serious about the lasting change that their charity is and philanthropy is tended to support, they need to change the makeup of the company mm-hmm. and, and find a way to empower and hire people of talent of people of color throughout the organization, particularly in the C-suite, because those people go on to either they'll found their own businesses or they'll grow in a mass wealth that they can then you know, return to the, to their community. And you tend to broaden the pie. Um, yeah. by, by having th- those more d- diverse voices that, you know, I think, um, you know, for a long time, uh, you know, baseball didn't have any people of color. Right. And, and mm-hmm. we would say baseball got tremendously better when Jackie Robinson started playing. Sure. Um, and the game and it opened doors with, you know, with everybody else in there. So I think that is the, um, you know, a key as we think going forward, companies have an, have a responsibility and an obligation to try and broaden and diversify their their ranks um, because it will have a more lasting impact you know, on um, on society and and on on the business side. I think from um, a purchasing standpoint, and this is this is key. A lot of companies spend you know they'll talk about their supplier diversity, sure, and how they've spent you know they'll you know, catering or construction or whatever the, those, but those are low margin businesses mm-hmm. that tend to not create a whole lot of wealth. In in today's economy, you guys know this, it's tech, finance, you know, the accounting firms. I mean, those are real sort of wealth building fields. Yep. And for, for, for decades and decades, people have called been locked out of those positions. Um, and so we think that companies should actually adopt the term business diversity and think through how they can diversify the people that they do business with up and down, you know, their accountants, their law firms, and just ask the question, you know, do you have any people of color, um, you know, or do you do work with any, you know, black owned or brown owned asset management firms or law firms or accounting firms or architecture sure. firms, whatever it may, it may be. 
just by asking the question, you find that a lot of companies who say they have these goals and say that they're working on it, um, you know, by by actually trying to and and showing progress uh, with those you, those more diverse firms in those businesses, you're going to, we're going to attack the wealth gap in a much faster way. Yeah. It's interesting. So I, I will, I'll go into a little off script here, but um, I used to spend some time working with Ursula Burns, um, who was the CEO of Xerox for a long time, African-American female and total kick-ass lady. And, you know, she used to say when we were just in conversation, I'd say kind of how things going. And she used to say all the time, like, um, I just, I want to be just the CEO. I don't want to be the female CEO. I don't want to be the black CEO. I don't want this to be a big thing. And frankly, like it's kind of annoying when it is a big thing. Um, She's clearly a pioneer, but you could see um, a place where, you know, she, she was as smart as, as anybody and running a fortune 15 company. Um, I think she's now sitting on lots of boards and doing all kinds of other great things. Um, um, but you could just see in a conversation with her how just totally frustrating it was. Like, just like, sure. hey, I, I'm not, I'm in, yes, I'm in an all boys club and I'm in an all white boys club. And I'm in like, could we, hello, could there be a club where I could have some people look like me, please? Right. Um, no, I think that's, uh, that's true. And we've talked about it in, in, in uh, the political world as well. I mean, people, a lot of times when you come up, um, you think, oh, well, you can start doing the African American comms or Latino. Sure communications or you know policy on african-american or latino um policy and the struggles for people of color has always been well i i know how to do comms or policy for all kinds of fields, not just <laughs> right, right, right not just what is it what is you know right. central to my my own own business and so i think that is a key um you know i think that's kind of probably where she was getting at i'm i'm an expert in running a business full stop yeah, um, exactly. And, and I'm really good at it. And by the way, right. like there's no, there's no, nothing else to it. So, uh, um, one more on this lane and then I want to take a bit of a shift. So we have a huge black lives matter, uh, movement, um, kind of accelerated by the death of George Floyd, uh, the murder of George Floyd. Um, I've asked this to just about everybody, um, that we've interviewed, because I'm interested, has it changed your business at all? Has it changed the way you guys do stuff? Or do you guys feel more like, hey, this is part of the thing we have baked into the cake before we started and we feel stronger and more kind of convinced that we're going down the right road? So two things I'll, I'll say there. Uh, one, because we are a Black-owned and founded firm, diversity has just been in our DNA yep. from the get-go. And mm-hmm. so um, we're proud that more than half of our senior leadership are women or people of color. Um, and the closest more than, more than 60% of our staff are you know, minority or people of color. And so we've, we've, it's sort of just part of who we, who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, um, we would say companies should, um, if you have those diverse people in it within the business, you're more likely to continue to have more of those people in the business you know, and find more of those people throughout the, the, the talent pipeline. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily changed how we, you know, act. I think we certainly feel that companies we're glad that companies have sort of stepped into the water or trying to figure out how, yeah. how they can help, you know, solve um, and address some of this, the, these problems, but there's understand the full depth um, of, of the challenge recognize that the wealth gap is getting wider, not smaller, that we have a responsibility to do more 
um, not just kind of what we've always been doing. And we've been someone encouraged that companies seem to get that. It's been a lot of talk yeah. when there's, you know, we're hopeful that that talk. And I would say to, like, to action. I would say like as a boring white guy, like at least you get some t- talk is better than no talk. Right. But action right. is better than talk. Well, and, can, and we, can we just drill down that for a second? Cause I, it was a question I was going to ask about is how much of, I think after any big cataclysmic political, social, cultural event happens, right? There's like a, a and I know we're going to transition to to other big cataclysmic events that happened this year, but there's often like a a rush to react and a rush to kind of do something, and then that recedes. How how performative do you think the, the the response is right now versus how sustainable it might be? Right. Like you talked about people saying like they want to do something and, you know, be as candid or, or, or not as you want to be about this, but, but are folks you think sincerely interested in making change or do you think that they are looking at it with a, a public affairs eye, you know, that we're going to do what we need to do to get through this kind of process. And then we'll revert back to business as usual. I think it's been a bit of a mixed bag. I think there definitely have been some companies who we've seen who've said, you know what, we're going to use this moment to um, release the diversity numbers of our C-suite and our corporate staff because we think having that transparency and sunshine will help force us internally to to do a better job um, and to, to, to increase um, yeah, the diversity of our team. I've seen some of this was in the work, but the SEC actually just had a, um, a – one of their advisory committee hearings last week focused just on increasing diversity for asset management firms in the industry. In my time and career working in the politics, that has never happened before. So that is in itself progress. Yeah, sure. Um, and I think, but there have been those companies who think and they'll say, you know, oh, well, here's, you know, we're going to commit $100 million to this, uh, you know, um, effort when they're sitting on $20 billion in cash, right? right? hundred million dollars out of 200 billion is, you right. know, a rounding error. And, uh, you, and, and so finding if we're, the response needs to meet the challenge, um, and, um, finding a way to, um, Again, go it, look in house, increase the you know this this corporate spend with diverse firms, um, hire diverse people on the, on the talent, being creative about the people you're looking for to solve some of those problems, yep, or to fill some of those roles will help you actually outperform and and, and succeed. And so that's that's kind of where I think we come down on the issue and recognizing it's not going to be solved overnight, but there are some things like I said people purchasing and philanthropy would be three easy ways that companies could, could, could jump, uh, and, and, and act. So let me just add this one. Uh, I'm going to take a shift to COVID in a second here, but I just want to be clear. You guys are not running a charity either, right? You're, 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 right. you're about making dollars. Uh, and, and that's the, you know, uh, we've spent a bit good part of this, uh, podcast on diversity and what it means for companies. But to be clear, Y'all just y'all are making money, right? That's that's how this works. That's that we we are we are judged by you know whether we hit our benchmarks or, or not, and that is that is that you know that's what Ariel's number one focus is. Melody, 
uh, and John often joke that people sometimes forget that they uh, run an asset management firm for a living. Um, <laughs> but it is, it is, it is, it is true. And, and it's not to, to dismiss the the responsibility that, that we feel um, to make progress on these efforts. One last thing I'll, I'll say, and it's part of our, our DNA as I, um, we've run a, uh, and founded the aerial community Academy on the South side of Chicago. Um, and, a key part of that uh, program in that school is a financial literacy effort to provide young kids predominantly, I mean, it's a predominantly overwhelmingly black and Hispanic uh, student yep. population with uh, just a knowledge and understanding of finance in the stock market. Mm-hmm. And kids actually starting in first grade start learning about the stock market and they get aerial contributes money that kids can in real dollars, they can invest in the market. Um, and then when they graduate and go to high school, um, they can either take that money and put it in a 529 plan or, you know, they, they can, can keep some of that money. And part of it also goes to then seed the first grade class um, sure. that, that comes in. That's an example that companies, financial institutions could adopt a local school. And you're talking, you know, again, a fraction of what these companies have on their balance sheet, totally. but it actually wouldn't move the needle and, and, and help kids learn about a piece of the business that they then may go to either start their own uh, investment firm because they have a sense of that the stock market is a thing that exists. Yep. Um, or they'll go work for those companies and, and, and have a, we found um, it's a, a huge upside um, and something that we hope other people think about. My guess is they also make a little bit of money. Yeah. yeah the kids, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. But like the, they're, you know, they almost always, you know, turn, turn, uh, you know, profit and turn. And, um, because if you, the foundation and the principles are, are, um, and they understand the magic of compound interest and when yep. that, that adds over time and what, um, and how that, that works can work for you or against you. Um, so we've been really, um, it's, it's a great program. Um, and the kids are, are brilliant. And we think it's again, a model that other companies totally. could, could easily adopt. I feel like I sort of want to go through that in part because I still operate under the like that scene from the wedding singer when he goes into the bank and he's like, I've got a jar that I put money into on the top of my refrigerator, (laughs) more money into that jar. uh, And that's where you come in. Right. So uh, I I think any program that that is helping people understand financial literacy is somebody, frankly, in my own life that was a little late to the game is uh, is very helpful. Um, Absolutely. All right. So let's take a turn to, to the other giant topic. You know, we, we've had 10 podcasts now we've asked, you know, two major questions about every one of them, one related to, you know, kind of the, the fight for racial equality and the other one obviously related to COVID, right? So you guys are dealing in a very volatile market these days. Um, how have you handled COVID, you know, you're longer term investors. So my guess is you're not chasing things minute by minute. It doesn't affect you as much, but is there other than like people working from different places, has it changed the way you guys do business at all? So it's been, been great to see that it actually hasn't. Um, Mm -hmm. We um, were able to shift to a remote working environment um, pretty seamlessly. And it's uh, a testament to the the people at the firm. Um, They're sort of adaptable and, and, Mm -hmm. and mobile um, and, and that's certainly what was an incredibly volatile market, but it, it speaks to, um, when we had a, a sort of a plan and I think a lot of our, our folks, um, you know, had a, 
a sense of if there were opportunities, a wish list that stocks that we wanted to invest in that, you know, became cheap, what would they be? And, um, our team was, was, you know, I, I, I think our, um, results, I think speak, speak well for them, for themselves. Um, I think the key, uh, for us is, you know, again, finding those opportunities that are, that are in companies that are going to perform in, in the long run. And I just give our, our team a lot, a lot of credit for, for being ready to act on that. But I think as far as a remote working environment, it's been, it's been um, pretty impressive. And I think there's also a sense from the firm and from our teammates that nobody is in a rush to get back. Yeah. And we can, we, we've found a way to adapt and, and in fact, in many ways be more productive because uh, people aren't on planes or they're yeah. not, you know, trying to, trying to get to places, um, uh, there they can focus and, and be, um, kind of in, in, in one place and that people are happy to take, um, take a meeting, um, even if it's virtually, uh, and, and so we'll, the key thing, and I, I know you, this is something you've got into some of your guests, like how does this change and affect yeah, sure. the way businesses work for the long term? Um, the jury is still, still out. I, I think, uh, you, when you spoke to, to Josh Ernest, he talked about that the one, the one time that a company loses a, 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 you know, a sale or loses something because they didn't get in person mm-hmm. that might change behavior. Um, and there's, there's definitely some, some truth to that, but I think we're finding efficiencies in this, in this process, uh, that people didn't maybe even necessarily know that, that were, were possible. Yeah. I'm also right. finding, and this is just maybe anecdotally, and I've talked to a bunch of people that this, that in a very weird way, the work-life balance can be made a little bit easier without commutes and without airplanes and without that kind of stuff. And I'm not, look, you know, I'm my friends who work for airlines and whatever, I hope everyone gets back up and running, but it, there's something different to be saying like, you know, okay, I'm going to have a call. I'm gonna do these calls when I'm done my work at six o'clock at six Oh four, I'm going to walk into my kitchen and see my kids. And like, there's no commute, there's no traffic, there's no, so I'd be interesting to see, actually, I'm kind of starting to get a little fascinated if, do people get a little more efficient here? Now, I do think you got to get kids back to school for that to really happen. Um, but, but, but I do think there's a lot of people who might start saying, you know, like, hey, I'll come into the, I'll come to the office a couple of days a week, but I'm going to start, I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing the work at from home thing longer term works for me. It works for my family. It would not surprise me if there was a big positive out, outcome. Of that. Yeah. I think the key, uh, I, there's a distinction between people who have young kids versus older kids. Um, right. and I found as, um, uh, the parent of a, a five-year-old and now a three month old, um, you know, when you're, when you're home and they're home all day long, productivity kind of goes out the window for the hours <laughs> that, that they're, uh, that everybody's awake and you find, you know, doing either more early mornings and, and later nights. Um, and so I, I agree with you getting kids back to school whenever that's a the healthy way to, to do that. Um, I think when that happens and people can then still be at home to be at home when the kids come home from school totally. or they can go pick their kids up from school because they have more flexibility and they can see how working from home is easier. Uh, that will be, I think be a, a change in society. And I think you think back to our parents' generation they are, I mean, most of our dads didn't go pick up our kid, the kids totally. from school. Yeah, right? I mean, it just wasn't yeah. part of the culture, yeah, right? Totally. Um, now, post COVID, and if there's more flexibility to working from home, 
you may that that type of family bond may be stronger because of this new environment or you're just not on a plane as often totally as you would have been before or like you know little things like um i really like coaching my kids hoops team and that was for a while really really hard to do and now i don't know on the days that there's practice and again we're assuming we get past all this stuff into like where there actually are sporting events and things um right (laughs) um, i think it'll be interesting for for you know we all came up in the political space and i think that for younger staff staffers, right? Not having um, more senior staffers around to demonstrate how to do things and kind of learn from uh, on a day-to-day, like being very task-oriented as a junior staffer and not getting the exposure kind of in person and that cultural will be interesting to see how we manufacture that and kind of grow a pipeline um, and see the folks that, you know, on the fly can kind of do what they need to do. Um, But it actually brings me, it makes me think about, you know, as the firm and having line of sight into the businesses that you you work with, that you invest in, you know, how has this pressure tested that, right? Like how is it, how is this crisis pressure, pressure, pressure tested them made the, the firm think differently about where they might invest or, or kind of what the investments they've made are. No, I think uh, it's, a, it's a smart question. I think that there definitely is uh, a sense where, um, companies are, are, are going to have to adapt and, and find a way to make this, this period uh, work, work, work best for them. Um, I'm not sure if I totally answered your, your question there or if there's an, if I'm, um, uh, but I, I, th- I think it's going to force companies to really um, think smartly about how they, um, you know, how flexible they, they, they can be. Can I, I, didn't hear, I didn't hear anything after that was a smart question. Like my ego. Just, <laughs> like, like, well, that was a smart question. That's how it works. Adam goes right off to audience. To, yeah, yeah exactly. I was good. Your audience. So yeah, I'm going to ask you if it's, if it's okay, I'll ask you two political questions, knowing that you're, sure. you're not in the political space anymore. So, so, so um, and then uh, Adam has some fun stuff we do at the end here. So, so, um, you know, putting on your old political hat, you know, if you're advising um, some a candidate running for office now. And, you know, I've asked this for a bunch of folks, you know, what do you tell them to do in this environment, right? People are home more than they would otherwise be Their Their um, news is generally not great. Right. So, you know, um, when you turn on the news and you see, you know, um, federal agents in Portland or, you know, it just becomes a thing where at some point people just start to say like, ah, I'm going to turn this off. So you, you know, you're, you're a, a reformed hack like the rest of us what, what um what would you be telling folks to do now i think there's there is this hunger and i think we all feel it for some sense of human interaction and human contact right and and so f- for candidates finding you know, authentic ways to to create that those types of environments i think are um are what i'd be looking for i heard one um I thought it was a great idea doing a drive-in campaign event where people, you find an open space, people can drive in with their cars, you get speakers and they can pull up in a parking lot, almost like a drive-in movie. Oh, that's cool. And hold a, hold an event or rally. And you can, you can communicate with people that way. It's again, not the same as packing a gym and and doing that type of of event. Um, But we all, they all have to have to adapt. And I think, um, I would think finding ways that are within their, their candidates comfort zone um, that where they can have those authentic moments um, 
are important wearing a mask, obviously. Um, and, uh, but I, I think if there's a candidate who's just not, if you're a candidate who's just not going to be good at that type of event, don't put yourself in that situation, find a way to, um, whether it's, if you're more comfortable doing the virtual event, do that. If you don't know how to get off mute, don't do a virtual event and you can do something <laughs> exactly. in, in person. Um, exactly. and so I think, I think you're, you're finding campaigns, you know, find a way to, to, to attack, uh, that, that, that challenge. And it's been interesting. The presidential level, I think gets a lot of attention and, yeah. you know, Biden will give a speech and Trump will give a press conference and they'll, um, the networks will carry them live. And some of that seems normal. Um, or like you would typically see in the doldrums of the summer presidential campaign. But as we get into the fall, I think candidates are going to have to find other ways to, especially at the state and local level, to, to create those, those moments and find ways to, to engage people. And also I think finding a, way, a, a smarter digital strategy and a vote by mail strategy is like, is fundamental. And so money you may have spent on, uh, on travel or, um, other sort of engagement should be spent on trying to organize and a vote by mail effort. Um, and, and to, to get folks to make sure that they, that they know how to, how to vote and how to cast a ballot and do it, do it on time. It's interesting. You know, I, I give, um, I don't agree with everything that she has to say politically, but I will say that folks like AOC and the kind of younger, congressional folks, their social media is different than any social media you and I ever worked on when we were on the Hill, which is, it's very much responsive. It's very much like, here's what I did today to work for you. Here's what I'm doing tomorrow. Here's the things we're struggling with. It's a way to like humanize in a way that I think, I think candidates have to find some way to steal some of that, which is, here's what I'm doing today. Um, you know, and then tomorrow I'm going to do this for you. And it gives the it's a very personal experience. And I think you've seen that translate where people are trying crazy things like, you know, everybody is going on Jose Andres's, you know, Instagram live or Sue Bird and, right. and Megan Rapinoe's Instagram live, because it's just a funky different way to, to get in front of folks. I assume you, you think that trying everything at this point, you got to try. No, I think that's right. I, and I, th- one of the the moments that I remember stood out to me and it was it, the, the White House did this in the Obama administration around ACA, but they had the president go on Mark Maron's podcast. Yeah, right? and right. that's and it was a great. And he went to the garage, right? He like he went, went to the garage. Yeah, yeah they yeah. did the whole thing, right? And that takes a, a little bit of risk um, from a, a, you know a candidate standpoint uh, or an a, a elected official standpoint. But fine, I'm sure there are people in your community, and and this is where it gets being tapped into the local organizers and local leaders. Is what are the things that they're doing and go and meet them and meet people where they are. Don't try to speak down to them from your, from on high. I think the more you can seem like you're engaged at the grassroots level and you're trying to uh, talk to people authentically where they are, you're more likely to break through and people are more likely to hear your message, not just listen to what you have to say. Right. All right. So we'll go to Adam. Adam asks, uh, the, we have some quick hits at the end here. And uh, Adam tends to ask a bunch of questions that has nothing to do with anything we just talked about. Um, <laughs> so Adam, fire away. Uh, it, it feels like you've listened to the podcast before, so you might be prepped. Uh, so I kind of want to switch it up, but I'm not going to. <laughs> um, if you could be paid for a year to do anything, uh, what would you choose to do? So I, I 
this is actually something I would have been, been able to answer without listening. But, um, <laughs> but I think, I think if I, if I could do anything, it'd be, um, uh, a professional photographer and travel the world, uh, Paul Nicklin style, or just finding a way to, um, catch those early sunsets or, or early sunrises or sunsets somewhere in a remote place. Uh, there's an element of, uh, I find, personal piece that comes with that being totally kind of removed and off the grid. Um, uh, I, I would, that's would, an would awesome gladly, answer. It's gladly do that. Have you, happily um, have you done a bunch more during the pandemic stuff? Have you been able to get, uh, I would say I did a little bit before, um, uh, the birth of my, my daughter and then actually, a li- um, but in the last couple of weeks as she's been sleeping a little bit better, <laughs> I've been there waking up, uh, she's kind of gotten in a rhythm where I can go out and, 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 and do it a little bit. It's, it's, um, it's a fun, uh, very, very amateur, uh, effort. Um, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I would have loved if you had said, uh, actually, I don't own a camera. I've never taken a photo. Feels like a great call, right? Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that would have been, that would have been an enjoyable answer. Um, if you had a time machine and you could go go back, uh, what is your best thirty seconds of advice to your early twenties self? Early twenties self, I was sort of in and around uh, uh, politics and campaigns. I, I I would have gone out on the road and done a, a a race in another part of the part of the country, or just traveled and um, and and I, I there's I felt at the time a sense of. I needed stability. I needed a guaranteed paycheck. I didn't like taking that risk seemed foreign to me. And looking back on, it, I think I probably missed out on some real um, great life experiences uh, and life challenges of forcing to adapt and, and, uh, and have to you know, um, meet new people and, and get tested in different types of, of campaigns outside of just the, i bulk of my career was at the, the, the party committee in Washington. Um, so I would have definitely gotten out on and done a race in Des Moines or Denver, uh, someplace that would have, uh, found a way to broaden my horizon. Cause I think, uh, and it's a, a, a quip that Jim Clyburn used to always, um, tell me when I was on his, his staff, but I think it's true. We're all the subject of our experiences and the more experiences you have, the more well-rounded you are and the more you can see people, um, where, where they are, not necessarily where you think they are. Um, so I, I, I would have gotten out on the road somewhere. Uh, I, I share that. I, I got out late. Uh, my first campaign I managed was in Las Vegas. So admittedly like a little bit of a different universe than, than yeah. other places, but having lived in Denver and done campaigns there and, and, and Des Moines, uh, I look at them as like my greatest adventures and I just wish that my adventure had started earlier. Right. No, uh, right. totally. I, I'll tell one, one, one last clip, but we, uh, when I was at, at the DNC, we had a, a, a bus tour, uh, the end of the 2012 campaign where we went all over the country. I mean, I think we, um, we put like 50,000 miles on a range of buses and, and with a bunch of different staff and just in the last like, six months, six weeks of the campaign. And it was just tons of fun. Um, and the challenge of, generating press for a bus rolling through Jacksonville, Florida, and then Orlando, and then going on to somewhere else in the country um, was just a great experience. And it gave me a hint of like, wow, man, that would have been great to have had that experience. At the same time, 
you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take it, take what you can get and, <laughs> and try exactly. to, um, try to think, okay, just cause I didn't do it before. There are other things I can do in my career still, you know, in the time I have, uh, going forward to do some of those things. I maybe didn't in a different way, didn't do earlier. Well, just knowing a little bit about you, I feel like uh, the best part about getting out of DC is getting real perspective on what real people think about outside the Beltway. Yeah, um, that's absolutely. You know, that's uh, that's valuable. Um, the kind of the last question, because uh, we're all fantasizing about. I mean, you especially with a three-month-old, but uh, about getting back out into the world um, after COVID nineteen. Uh, what is your favorite restaurant? Where is it, and what do I order? So I, this is, this has been a, 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 a tough, tough one. Um, and you have the question in advance, so you hopefully have prepped this answer. But. I've, well, but it's, it's hard. Cause there's just, just like a couple like places where the, like I can think So I'm, I'm born and raised in, in St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands and uh, get to go back there every now and then. Um, and uh, there is a, uh, uh, one of my old, old friends, there's a restaurant called Zion uh, restaurant in, in Christian said St. Croix. Um, and there's a, a ton of great, great food in the menu, but he's got like a short ribs that, that are, are pretty, pretty amazing. Um, uh, if, if not there, um, there's a MB chowder company on Martha's vineyard has a phenomenal clam, uh, New England clam chowder that's hands down better than anything I've ever I've had before. So, um, that would be, that'd be my, if I had to have it. If I so when we do this podcast again, when we do this podcast again, I suggest we do it over short ribs in St. Croix. Is that cool with you? And we just give yeah. us the tour. Done. Done. <laughs> we'll, we'll, and then we'll, we'll, we'll Does Ariel have a private jet that we can all just. <laughs> exactly. Uh, or some, I think we have to probably wait not. until, uh, I think we have to probably wait until COVID's over, but you know, there's time. Hey, there, you know, it, it's America's paradise for a reason. And, uh, you know, let's, uh, <laughs> um, everybody should be encouraged to get, to get down there and, and, and to get it. So, that's funny. Yeah, uh, we definitely find a way to make that happen. Well, well, Adam, I do, I want to say just to, in wrapping up here. Look, you're juggling two babies at home, and uh, boss testifying on the hill, and a bunch of other things. You made some time for us, and it really means a lot. We really appreciate it. Um, so, thanks for doing this for us, buddy. And uh, we're psyched uh, that you're at Ariel, and we're we're hope you're making truckloads of cash. <laughs> well, from your lips to God's ears, we'll take it. And, uh, um, and you know, hope uh, you and the family stay safe. Okay, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Yep. All right, Adam Weiss, what do you think about the Adam Hodge uh, podcast? Other than a bunch of guys named Adam. Well, I was decidedly on this one. I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, you know, I, I think there was a lot to take away. I think uh, he's a really unique perspective on on a range of things. I like what he talked about, about meeting people where they're at when we started talking about sort of the campaign stuff. And, and I think that's, you know, the conversations I've been having are, you know, you could be at the top of the stairs seeing what an incredible room and incredible view it is. But if somebody's at the bottom of the stairs, they don't know. Uh and they're comfortable at the bottom of the stairs. So you may have to go down halfway down the stairs all the way down to the bottom and bring them back up with you. And I think that was an interesting point he made about in this world in which, you know, everything's so uncertain, meeting people where they're at and finding people where they're at is, uh, is critically important. Yeah. I also, I took away the wealth gap stuff. I mean, I think, I think 
we we think of or certainly i think of you know um racial injustice being at all levels of the world but i I don't think I thought of it as specifically as, as, as a wealth gap. Like how do you ger- generate generational wealth? Well, you do that by running companies and being on boards and being in C-suites. And that's how you really change the economics of anybody. Um, and the other thing I would also say is like, um, and I tried to make this point, you know, they're definitely not running a charity. They think, you know, they're about making money and they think like a more diverse group of folks helps you make money. And I don't think they're wrong. No, I, clearly that's the case. I mean, and, I, and he said that the, the research backs that up. Um, you know, I, I also, frankly, on a personal level, love that he has listened to our previous podcast. And you means we have one listener. Now. We have one listener. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's my it's mother, Irvin. your mother, and now Adam. Perfect. Uh, I, I will say, um, other than Wendy Irvin, I think Adam <laughs> Hoff might be. All right. Uh, this was fun. Where can they find you? They can find me at Weiss Thinking on Twitter. And where can they find you, CR? <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. I'm at CR Wooters at, uh, on Twitter. Uh, and this is Strategy Lab. We'll catch you next time.